Stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Corn in the fields and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is sure they come. I work for the union because she's so good to me. Good afternoon. Hello. It's time for the Organic Farm Stand. My name is Richard Hill. Laura Modlin, how are you doing? Great. How about you? Oh, not so good, but... <laughs> not so good. Thanks you for look asking. Great. You look great today. Oh, real, real. It's amazing. <laughs> I did wash my my ball cap. <laughs> you washed your, your baseball cap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, and Steve Amano, how are you doing out there on Masara Farm? I'm doing all right. Glad to be here with you. We are delighted Thanks, to have you. you. All right. Well, we have a great show, as usual, or... As usual. Or for a change. No, 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 no. We're not doing that anymore. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right, Steve? That's right. Okay. See? <laughs> we can consensus here. Yeah. Oh, my God. Got outvoted <laughs> there. All right. Well, we're going to do some really cool things today, and we're going to try to make it work for you all out there in farmland, in uh, listener land. So let's get started. We're gonna, uh, actually, let's, let's just run down what, what we're going to do. Of course, we're going to have Laura, uh, Laura Modlin <laughs> do her uh, solar lunar report coming right up. And then right after that, the small farms report from Masara Farm. Steve Munno will bring us that with all kinds of news about how he's coping with a lot of rain and some news about maybe other farms in Connecticut and, and a little bit beyond. And then we'll have a special interview at 12.30 with Dr. Roy Beckford, who is currently the Associate Dean and Director of Agriculture Extension at the University of Vermont. And he's going to talk to us about the pretty critical situation in Vermont regarding the flooding that ha has happened over the past month, I would say, but really sort of crested, no pun intended, in the last 10 days. So we'll have that interview around 1230. Be very interesting to hear that because Vermont, I mean, I think that, it's, well, we'll find out, but I think that we're concerned that this flooding and its effect on small farms in Vermont will affect the uh, food supply chain. So we'll hear about that from Dr. Beckford. All right, let's get started with Laura Munno. Ah, <laughs> no, me again. Laura no, Modlin. Hello. So... Okay, so we are now officially, we are one month into official summer. Um, and so I decided to shake things up just a little bit. Um, instead of t uh, talking about the time of light from sunrise to sunset, during this time where we're losing light, I'm going to extend things by 
talking about the time from dawn, from the beginning of dawn to the end of dusk. So mm. it, it kind of gives us a little hope, you know, because yeah, it's a little more time. Yeah, it's, and it takes away some of the pain oh, gosh. of losing the light. I've been noticing, I notice like around seven, I notice it's darker at night. So um, today we had from, from twilight in the morning to the twilight in the evening, 15 hours and 48 minutes. So that's from 5.05 a.m. to 8.54 a.m. And we've lost P- since... P.m. I mean, P.m. We lost since last show, we lost um, just under 22 minutes. And um, for the next show in two weeks on August 3rd, we're going to lose 29 minutes. I thought we were going to talk about this losing stuff. This is not, we don't want to hear that anymore. I know, but, you know, it's it'll be so nice when we start gaining the sun again. <laughs> it, oh my God. You just have to hold on a few months. <laughs> okay. No comment. Have you been noticing, Steve? I mean, you know, at this time of year, the days just feel feel long, and and um, can't say I've noticed much of a shift. I, I think historically for me, it's suddenly in at the end of August, the time has changed tremendously. It does, yeah. And so um, we're in, you know in the middle of the moon cycle. We had the new moon uh, three days ago on July seventeenth for the Sturgeon Moon. As we learned on the last show, the Sturgeon Moon was named after a big old fish. And the full moon is going to be August 1st. And so on the next show, on the 3rd, we'll discuss what's coming up after that. But as you may remember, we have two super moon full moons in August, August 1st and August 30th. What is the name of the full moon in August? Did you mention that already? The Sturgeon full moon. Oh, I thought that was in July. Okay. No, no, that's the new, because the, the name starts with the new moon. The new moon is the beginning of the cycle. And um, and the so the the we have a blue moon at the end of August, which is going to be the closest uh, super moon to us. And I found out why the super moons sometimes have that orange feel look to them. It's because of the angle and when the sun is further away, um, because the sun lights the moon and when the sun is further away, the blue rays don't get to the moon as well. So it has um, the orangey look to it. What is the, there was some interesting constellation that we're going to be able to see, I think. Oh, that was, yeah, last night, I don't know, maybe it'll still be tonight, but last night, just after sundown, we saw, we had a party in the sky, and it was the the crescent moon, and Mars, and Mercury, and Venus were all really close together, um, Mm. just after sunset, just above the horizon. Mm. Did you see it? Um, Somebody went to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I went to sleep early. What about you, Steve? Did you see that? I did not see that. Uh, we get a great view of the sky here, and I often see uh, the, the stars rising. Um, I don't tend to see them in the morning, but uh, I, I did not see that that show. Yeah, it was a, it was a very special time. And well, I maybe somebody it. out there saw it. I maybe. Mean, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully a few people did see it, yeah. Well, I posted it on our Facebook page, oh, um, cool. which which people should check out the organic farm stand on WPCAN. Yeah, so to find that page, you simply write, t- type in organic farm stand 
And uh, then there will be choices, and it's the one associated with WPKN. Yeah. I don't think, I don't know, there might be other names similar to that. but And it's, Laura is populating that with all kinds of cool things now, including archives of the show that we're yes. doing each, each uh, every other week. That I mentioned, we do the show the first and third Thursday. I think I forgot to do <laughs> first that. First and third Thursdays of every month from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern time. Okay. All right. Let's, uh, you, you have one more item, I think. Okay, yes. Um, tonight is um, Sport Hill Farm in Easton. It has a something they call Sport Hill Farm After Dark, and it's going to be every third Thursday through the rest of the season, hopefully till December. And they have free live music by Henry Jones tonight and free cooking demos by Chef Linda. And um, there'll be some photo ops and face painting and um, the market will be open for shopping, but it's, it's all free unless you want to shop in the market. And, hmm. and Sport Hill Farm is, is in Easton and the address is on Sport Hill. It's, 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 I thought I wrote it down, but... It's on Sport Hill Road. Yeah, so don't hesitate. Uh, don't be put off by not having the number because it's easy to find uh, the address of Sport Hill Farm. Yes, sporthillfarm.com. Yeah. yeah, we were there a few weeks ago. Yep. Nice, very cool. With a, with a great uh, chicken chicken pen with probably, I don't know, 100. And they have a whole field that they can run around outside of the pen. Is that right? That whole the whole area outside the pen, they're, they're let out there and they just run around. Jeez. Free Crea- range. Creating mayhem, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Munno from Basaro Farm, tell us what is happening and how you coped and may con- might have to cope again with a lot of rain uh, for your farm and maybe some news about sur- the surrounding area. Sure, sure. Well, you know, here at Masaro, we're on we're on top of, of a hill here, so we we you know look out one direction towards New Haven and, and the other towards Naugatuck Valley, and so we're not very high. You know, we're at about four hundred and eighty feet elevation. Um, you know, we're we're not next to a river, and so when the rain that comes down, you know, saturates our field and then oversaturates our field, uh, it, it causes issues for sure, and that, that we're managing, but. Um, we're not dealing with some of the other things you alluded to earlier that we'll talk about, uh, the, the flooding that happens, uh, that's happened throughout Vermont uh, and, and upstate New York and in Massachusetts and Connecticut. So, you know, we're, we're fortunate for our location that, that flooding from, from rivers is not an issue for us. Uh, but certainly the rain, you know, has its own, own challenges uh, that present us here. It's been continually wet and saturated. You know, it's it's wiped out a few a few plantings, or made it difficult for some of our plantings to do, and, and it challenges some of our crop management as well. Um, that said, you know we're we're doing great. You know, in terms of our harvest at the moment, we've got a, a range of summer squash and zucchini coming in well. Our tomatoes are just starting to ripen, uh, both in the field and in our high tunnels. Um, we've got peppers that look like they, you know, are sizing up and eggplants as well. We've got a mix of herbs. We have beautiful flowers. So, you know, I'm grateful for where things are uh, for us at the moment. And, you know, always hope for, you know, conditions uh, to improve going ahead, but uh, more so for the other farms who are really struggling and who might literally be underwater right now with, you know, feet of, of, of water covering their fields. Um, so the outlook elsewhere is, is uh, and throughout the region is pretty tough right now. 
tell us what the like when you say you're coping with this soggy soil. How do you how do you do that? What, what how do you remediate or or prevent the I guess destruction of some of your crops? I mean, we there's only so much we can do, but some of it is you know built into being an organic farm and being a diverse farm, um, and some of it is how we make our beds and you know being committed to healthy soil practices. Um, like using cover crop to build our organic matter. So when we've got, you know, an increased organic matter in our soil, we're better able to um, to hold water in the soil and, and um, you know, manage erosion and such. So we use um, raised beds in our field. Our tractor has, a, a you know, an attachment that will help raise up the beds and create um, paths that when it gets really wet and we have these deluges of, of rain, um, water might sit in the paths, but it, it will it will sort of roll off of the bed and stay in the paths. So maybe we're in puddles as we walk through uh, through those paths to do our harvesting or our crop management, but um, our crops aren't sitting in water. Um, so when we've done cultivation, you know, planning throughout the the property, as, as you know, as you've walked through here, we've got you know tree um, tree plantings in strategic places for windbreaks and erosion control. Uh, we have some slopes in our field, so we uh, do contour planting, you know, along the slope. So we're not going up and down uh, a hill with our planting. Uh, we're going across the hill so that, you know, when it rains and water wants to sheet down the, the, that hill, you know, it's going to come up on a raised bed and a path, and, and it's going to slow it down. Then it's going to come, come across another bed and path, and it's going to slow it down as opposed to if we were going up and down the hill, the water would just sheet right down and, and, and wipe away our soil, too. So we've built in practices on the farm to, you know, make us resilient to these big storms. Uh, and like I said, we're, we're fortunate we're, we're not beside a river that's going to come up and flood us. But, you know, when we get four inches of rain in a day or, you know, 10 inches in a, in a week or two, um, you know, we can't stop that. There, there's still going to be challenges with oversaturation, um, not great for the soil to get that kind of rain in, in a short period of time. Um, but we're sort of built to handle it as best we can. Explain what the, the issue of tillage or no tillage, you know, that sort of debate that's happening nationally and also in the organic community. And to what extent do you practice no tillage at Masaro Farm? Yeah, so tillage is... Um, is how you work the soil. So, so the act of tilling is to sort of disturb the soil and prepare it. And we all do at least a little bit of that in preparing your garden. So if you're at home in the garden and you're you know, using a, a spade or a fork and you're you know sticking that spade or fork into the soil and turning it over, that's a little bit of tillage. And with a, a, a tractor, it might be a number of different tools, and some of which do very light tillage and some do more aggressive tillage. So we've always been a very light till farm. So we're, we're not um, going deep into the soil and pulverizing our soil with, say, a, a rototiller. A rototiller is kind of a heavy tillage machine. Um, we use kind of uh, some disc harrows that we can lightly set on the ground. We use a chisel plow, which is... Um, kind of loosens the soil but doesn't turn it over or um, destroy it in any way. So, And there are places where we use no-till as well. So um, so we might, just what I was doing earlier today, we, you know, mowing our cover crops and using tarps potentially to um, not disturb the soil but help break down the organic matter even further before we go to plant. So um, tillage is about, um, you know, doing work to prepare your soil and less tillage, reduced tillage, and no-till is 
less disturbance. And what a lot of folks will do, you know, again, on the garden level, it might be something like just adding uh, new potting soil, new bed soil, new compost on top of your existing bed and planting into that. Um, folks in, in urban settings and elsewhere might do sheet mulching where you're doing, uh, you know, or if you're dealing with a contaminated plot where you still want to grow and you do a sheet of cardboard and wood chips on top of that and another sheet of cardboard and wood chips on top of that and then your soil. So you've kind of capped off the space. Maybe there's even fabric below that to make sure there's uh, none of that contaminated soil comes above it. Now you've built up this soil uh, above the ground and then you've got um, your compost or your finishing sort of bed soil and you plant into that. Um, You know, the next year you can remove that crop residue and and put a new plant in without tilling. You know, that's sort of a no-till garden style. On the farms, uh, you know, um, you can do no-till as well. So there's just sort of different strategies depending on the size and acreage of your farm. Um, But generally speaking, I would say less tillage is going to be better for your soil health. Uh, And then when you've done less soil disturbance, you get a big storm like this, you're you're probably going to be a little better uh, able to weather such a storm. Uh, But again, if you've got no-till and you're by a river and that river comes up, well, you know, there's no stopping that river from coming up, regardless of your tillage. Yeah, hi, Steve. Um, I'm just curious for the for the people at home, um, for their for their lawns. Um, do you think that high the cutting that mowing high or mowing low is better? Because I think when you mow higher, you get better roots, which can absorb the water. What are you? What is your take on that? Yeah, I think you know. Um you know, if there's a, a professional organic land care uh, accredited person out there listening, they can chime in with the exact numbers. But I think the, the average mow height recommendation is about two and a half to three and a half inches. You know, it doesn't need to be mowed like it's a, a golf course all the way down to the ground or a soccer field. You know, grass is is going to grow. We want it to protect itself Um and, and if we mow too low, it's gonna the sun is gonna kind of burn out the roots. Um, so when we have a year like last year, when it's hot and dry all summer, you know they're not going to be able to weather that. So if we, we let it grow a little more, mow a little less frequently. Uh, if you can leave trimmings on the ground too, that'll help feed feed the the lawn. You know our our lawn here. I'm looking out at it now. It's it's uh, just outside of our field. You know we've never watered it and we've never fertilized it. We we mow every two weeks. Uh, maybe it, in April, May, it might be every 10 days or so, but we let it get to a few inches, and we mow it back, and we, we let it be a mix of species with clovers and dandelions and grasses of all kinds and uh, dead nettle and all sorts of things that flower in there. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we let it grow a little bit higher uh, before mowing it back um, so that it can be you know better for absorbing water and, um, and also dealing with droughts and, and sun. Steve, let's turn to the some of the challenges faced by farmers in Connecticut, possibly, and maybe what any news you've heard uh, through NOFA about Massachusetts. And I know there was some issues in Aguam and other other areas, upstate Massachusetts. What's the picture that, that you've been hearing about regarding the flooding? Well, I, I don't know as much the scene um, in Connecticut, you know, aside from uh, our friends over at Subedge Farm. Um, you know, uh, you know, they shared in their CSA note about some some photos of the floods and the river coming up into their fields, and you know, um, so they're doing their best to get by, and 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 I think 
you know, they've got a great community of folks there who are hopefully supporting them. So there's someone, I think, to look out for and, and see if you can, you know, there's farm stores still open. There's still ways to support them and, and they still have things that they're harvesting and growing, you know, uh, that, that haven't been affected. But um, I, I don't know the full picture yet in Connecticut. I think we'll hear more and more. And certainly, you know, the state is trying to find out and gather info from everyone and, uh, who's been affected and, and try to support them in whatever ways, you know, the state and the federal government can. Um, you know, Vermont was in the news quite a bit because um, it was so severe up there. Um, you know, we've heard, I've seen the notes come out from Nova Vermont and from, from Massachusetts that, you know, there's there's quite a bit of damage. It's, it's, it's a tough time and it's been on top of what was already a challenging year with some late frost, uh, you know, that set things back. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's, uh, that's the climate we're in. There's, there's challenges throughout the year and, um, you know, we rely on each other for support and rely on the community for support. So, uh, there'll be more and more info coming out soon. So I, I, I certainly don't have a complete picture at this time, but I, I know it's pretty tough out there. What can you tell us about the crops that are more vul- vulnerable to being, flooded or inundated with too much water uh, is there are some that are can survive that better than others well you know uh, for us here at Masara, where we're not really being flooded where it's really rain and oversaturation there are some things that will you know assuming uh, that we get clear skies and sun and it can dry out a little bit things can recover to a degree things that are already well established so we've got you know fields of of squash and cucumbers and tomatoes and eggplants that you know they're well rooted uh they get oversaturated hopefully you know it's going to dry out and and they'll be just fine we might get a slow bit of production um but they're going to be okay um things that are newly planted that aren't as well rooted you know it might set them back um you know having full and oversaturation of the soil uh, they might not grow at the same trajectory that we would expect. Um, it might be hard for us to get in there and do the weeding that we would like to do. You know, when ground is that wet, you know, you you, you can't really weed in the same way because, um, you know, at, at our scale, we're not, um, you know, necessarily removing every weed from the field. We, we try to sort of kill the weeds in our field with our cultivation, with our with our you know, long-handled tools or our hand and let the sun sort of kill them off as we uproot them with our tools. Uh, but when it's continually wet, we do that weeding and uh, those plants can just reroot. So the grasses or the, um, you know, unwanted plants out there can, can simply reroot in there. because You know, they're great at surviving. That's what, you know, grasses and weeds will do. Uh, so that gives us challenges uh, for sure. So, yeah, the newly planted things are tough and things that we seed, you know, have had a tough month uh, with trying to get carrots started uh, because carrots take a long time to germinate. About ten days or, or more, uh, and when you, we keep getting these heavy rains, it sort of disturbs those beds that they were in, um, and washes them out a little bit. And so, so that's been tough for us. But you know, the problem for places that are actually flooding with rivers is that once you get sort of flood contact, they might not be able to harvest anything at all because oftentimes flooding comes along with you know maybe sewage or septic or things in the water. Uh, because, you know, it's the whole system that's flooded and ends up in the river and, and contamination becomes a problem. Uh, yeah, no, um, I, I just wanted to mention about my, um, I had some correspondence with um, 
the produce manager at the Brattleboro Food Co-op, John Trunkel, and I was asking him about his suppliers, and he said there were three that he knows of that have had substantial damage, and one of them, it was, they lost their entire red and green leaf lettuce, um, and there was damage to low to the ground crops such as cabbage, broccoli, and cauliflower, but they're going to be able to replant for harvest later in the season, which is good. Um, and then another one was able to was hasn't been able to get out into the fields for weeding because of the amount of rain, and um, things have to dry out in order to do that. And then um, the third one lost their entire mixed green spinach and arugula as well as cilantro. Um, they've begun replanting for harvest in the next month or so. But on a better note, he said, um, this is all local Vermont. He said that um, the blueberry crops have been abundant and the corn crop is looking good. Hmm. The Brattleboro Food Co-op is... Southern Vermont. Southern Vermont, yes. Southeastern. It's very south. Um, it's, yeah, it's just near the border to New Hampshire. Uh-huh, yeah. There's a tri-state thing there. Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and, and uh, Vermont all sort of come together at that point. <clears throat> yeah, that's a great co-op. And um, yeah. that issue of how, you know, we, we may see some of that, you know, we may some, I'm not sure how much produce comes from, our produce comes from Massachusetts and Vermont, you know, our organic produce that we find in our, uh, in our health food stores, sh- places that I shop at, you know, perhaps even, you know, big stores like Whole Foods, uh, we may see some of the effect of of that flooding. Well, I think, yeah, organic, when you want organic fruit, I think that a lot of it does come from a further north because they don't have the same issues we do here with humidity. And, you know, it's a little cooler up there. Mm, Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see what the, you know, the meteorological... uh, bag of tricks that we may be dealing with <laughs> coming down. I, I was in the Berkshires past couple of weeks and um, boy, that it, talk about unstable weather conditions. I mean, literally every day uh, there's a possibility of a thunderstorm. And um, so, and that's farming country too. So it's, uh, you know, it's very tricky. And Steve, you deal with this, <laughs> you know, month to month, year to year. Um, and I uh, wonder how you're, uh, you know, what you do to uh, to allay your your nervous. <laughs> you must be a nervous wreck sometimes when trying to figure out what the weather is going to bring you. Well, you know, I don't, I don't um, feel nervous about anything, but I, I do spend a lot of time on my weather app. So you know, there's <laughs> that. I, I'm, I'm looking at what's going on uh, and trying to plan our our work. You know, based on you know what we're seeing at the moment and what might be coming ahead. So if it, tomorrow, you know, looks like a day that's going to be potentially thunderstorming from first thing in the morning. I, I can't have my crew out there in lightning. So today we're doing more harvest than we would. Um, in case we can't harvest uh, tomorrow morning. So, you know, we've got a CSA distribution and farm stand in the afternoon tomorrow. So, uh, you know, typically uh, Friday morning we might harvest flowers for bouquets that we make along with uh, some some lettuce and kale and such, but we, we made sure we do, did, did those things today. Um, so, you know, there's always just an evaluation of what's, what's coming in the weather, you know, and how do we best handle that with the, the work we're going to do. Um, but you know, you can't control it. So, and oftentimes the forecast is wrong as well. So we just roll with that and make, make the best choices we can and and feel comfortable with that and and move on. 
that's a very uh, equanimous uh, position that you've, you're maintaining there, Steve. I, I commend you for that. <laughs> Shall we inter- bring our guest on, Laura? Sure. He's right. standing by waiting for us. Um, we have um, Dr. Roy Beckford, who's um, the Associate Dean and Director of Agricultural um, Extension at the University of Vermont. Um, he's received his PhD in Sustainability and Integrated Food Systems from Prescott College in Arizona. He has extensive experience as an agricultural consultant, including international extension experience in serving communities in need of um, in need in Central South America, the Caribbean, and Southern Africa. He has a book um, like, uh, called Poverty and Climate Change about restoring um, a global biogeochemical bio- equilibrium. And that's his, I believe, his second book. Right. Um, major work, his second major yeah. work, yeah. Examining the environmental and social issues in developing and uh, in underdeve- under, underdeveloped <laughs> Economies. Oh, we're having a great time reading our little. <laughs> well, we have to go back well, to school. <laughs> well, thank you for that introduction. Um, you kind of sound like it's not me that you're reading about. <laughs> of course, of course. Yes, Dr. Bickford, thank you so much for joining us. All right, and hence where I think you should have said Roy. Okay, <laughs> got it. All right, okay. Thank you, Roy. Well, why don't you start start by telling us a little bit about what uh, you do there at the University of Vermont. What is an agricultural extension, per se? Okay. Um, First of all, let me just say, I I, I caught um, the last few sentences of um, the person we were just talking to. Steve Munner. And um, it it just reminded me of many of the places that I've lived and worked. I worked and lived in the British Virgin Islands where... There were 10, 13 hurricanes in 10 years, um, and I also moved to Vermont from Florida. Um, and you know the hurricane situation, the annual hurricane situation there, which includes, of course, flooding. Um, I do extension um, at the University of Vermont, and I've done extension for a long, long time. Extension is a, is a word that actually popped up for the first time, perhaps during the Irish potato famine in Europe, and it was it was a way to extend education, empowerment, and information to farmers in particular who needed to uh, figure out the ways to change their systems of production for potatoes in um, in Ireland back in the 1800s. Um, and the word has taken on new meaning in the United States since 1914. We have adopted and established a national, nationwide um, cooperative extension system in all our land-grant universities. Um, and so we became known as the cooperative extension um, system in the United States, and we exist in every state, um, not just in the traditional land grant universities, but in the HBCUs, and um, since 1994, also in the um, indigenous colleges as well. Hmm. Well, t- you're sitting up pretty pretty far up in uh, in Vermont. I think you're in um, mm-hmm. northern, yeah, right right near Burlington, Bur- right in Burlington, yeah, in Burlington, in which Burlington. Is, yeah, mm-hmm. can't get any closer to the Canadian border. I think so. Yeah. T- t- <laughs> Tell us uh, what you see from that perspective in terms of, you know, we've heard a lot of, of dire 
reports about the situation in Vermont, mm. just generally, but specifically with regard to small farms and even larger farms in Vermont. What, what, okay. da- what data have, co- have come in so far? All right. So while, while my office is actually at the University of Vermont campus in Burlington, Extension, as a part of the university, has offices across the entire state in every county almost every county. We have 11 offices across the state, and so we're, uh, we're scattered throughout the state, and we have impact, and we have extension personnel who are either professional staff or faculty who work directly with farmers, large farmers, medium-scale farmers, and small farmers as well. Um, and so I see and touch um, all aspects of agriculture and farming in the state of Vermont through all of these um, extension professionals who, who work across the state. And what we're seeing is interesting um, uh, and very reminiscent of um, Hurricane, um, I think, or Tropical Storm Irene that impacted Vermont in 2011, I believe, um, where uh, there was significant damage uh, to produce, not just from the the impact of the the flooding directly, but the aftermath of the flooding and the consistent, persistent rains that's been happening in the state of Vermont for the last uh, six weeks or so, and it continues. It's not stopped yet. Uh, We see lots and lots of damage. In some cases, we see um, total loss of crops. the report I got from um, my vegetable and berries team is that several dozen uh, farmers have reported total loss or close to that. Another hundred or so farmers um, have had significant loss, and almost all produce farmers um, have yield loss um, due to the, the the rains I talk about. In fact, up to 17 inches in, in some places, in some wow. towns. Yeah, and, and can you give us a sense of how much your... Food system is dependent on smaller farms, like the kind of farms you know our our itinerant farmer Steve Munno was on the line with us here. These these farms which serve you know the communities in which they live, but may also distribute to, for example, the the uh, Brattleboro Food Co-op. How much of the food system is you know supplies? The, the population of Vermont and also uh, maybe other states in New England? Um, a significant uh, amount of it. I mean, remember, Vermont is a small state, and most of Vermont is also rural. Most of the farms are also located in rural environments. And so the food distribution networks are designed to reach uh, or to be kind of um, – to have impact in the local environments. And uh, also, we do have um, food being delivered into into Burlington from these many small farms. Uh, And so we depend in the state of Vermont significantly on our local farmers um, for fresh produce, and of course, also in milk, which very often people don't think that, you know, cattle and and other livestock are, are affected. But when fields are flooded, there's no forage. Um, and this is summer when animals are out, outdoors. And so, you know, when you have those kind of things, the feed 
for our, our livestock. It's also con- contaminated by floodwaters. Um, and so not only is the food for human beings affected, but our feed for livestock and other um, essential uh, animals are also impacted. But this is it's significant. And so we have to change our, our distribution system. We have to look for uh, food coming in and produce coming in from outside the state of Vermont um, to sustain um, the people of Vermont. Um, yeah, talking about the the food system in Vermont, I've been reading about how um, a lot of the people um, who have financial need are um, that the farms will will donate food for a lot for a lot of um, helping people who can't afford it. So is is this you know flooding and making it kind of more of a divide between the people who can afford it and those who can't? Absolutely, without a doubt, that is creating a strain. Um, uh, of course, we do uh, have a number of food banks um, that also collaborate with, um, with, with with some of our farms. I mean, the food banks also receive produce from farms. Um, and so, you know, in, in, instead of having fresh uh, produce, we have to lean now more um, on um, canned products or packaged products from um, our, our food banks, uh, which is which which helps. But of course, you know, I mean, our, our people in the state of Vermont have, have grown accustomed to you be able, be able to, you know, to receive some some foods and food supplies from our local farms, and that is not the case for for since floods and. Um, even to some extent um, before that, when the, when the rain started to get uh, more prolonged and having an impact on production. Can you talk a little bit about the divide or difference between or the scale of, of the size of farms in Vermont? Like how many are what you might consider large farming operations? And, and, and how does that contrast with the small farmers, such as the farm that Steve Mono runs in, uh, in Woodbridge? Mm-hmm. So, so Vermont is interesting. I've been here now two years, um, and as I said, I came here via um, other extension university systems in Florida and uh, North Carolina. In Florida, I used to work with farms that were 2,000 acres large. Uh, in the state of Vermont, which is a smaller state, um, a large farm, a significantly sized farm, is 200 acres. Um, mm. That is a large farm. Yeah. Um, but when we when we talk about small farms, we we have to con- contemplate whether we we are defining those along the lines of the USDA uh, definition or our <laughs> own definition of what a small farm is. Right. So if you have really largest farms being 200 to you know 600 acres, then small farms are 10 acres, 20 acres. Those are highly productive farms that most of them actually sell their produce at farmers markets and so on. Um, and so very often there is that distinction between the mid-sized farms or the large farms that, that exist there and those smaller ones uh, that are that are that are very very um, diversified that do greens and you know winter squash and all those things um, but they're nonetheless significantly affected when things like this happen um, uh, really really quickly um, you know when a weather emergency like this happens we're speaking with Roy Beckford, who is uh, the Associate Dean and Director of Agriculture Extension at the University of Vermont in Burlington. Uh, let's uh, see if Steve Mono uh, from Masaro Farm has any question or comment for uh, Dr. Beckford. Roy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, uh, you know, I, I don't know what, what's coming in the forecast or, or you know, um, 
what the outlook is going to be like, and I'm sure it's different in different parts of the state um, and what support folks are, are getting. But, um, you know, my, my understanding is lots of farms are just going to try to replant what they can when they can. But I'm curious if, if, if the state has issued any warnings about, you know, not harvesting things because of contamination. You know, I, I've heard tales of, you know, propane tanks going down the river and, and such Ooh. and through fields. Just there's so much debris and, and things from, from the flooding and damage. So, I don't know what, what's been issued in terms of warnings in the state or, or what's coming next, but I'd love to hear a bit more, uh, you know, what's been communicated yeah. and, and how things are looking. Yeah. The um, the Agency of Agriculture, uh, and certainly the federal government as well, um, and other um, agencies and non-government, both non-governmental and governmental agencies in the state of Vermont, uh, have actually uh, come together uh, to issue uh, warnings about food safety issues and so on. Um, there's there's a number of that happening. If you go onto any one of the state uh, websites, you'll see any number of uh, websites dedicated to, to this, um, kind of providing information to farmers and others uh, about potential problems. But more than that, you mentioned something very you know important here was you know you know you know tank gas tanks kind of floating down river and so on. What we saw after um, um, hurricane um, tropical storm Irene in 2011 was um, heavy metals uh, contamination mm-hmm. from floodwaters, uh, and many of these potentially can can you know you know do significant harm to the human beings if you consume foods the, or, or produce that's been contaminated by cadmium and you know all these things. Um, so there is increasingly uh, a look at testing uh, for this, um, especially on our, on our farms, uh, in and around farms. And they're making sure that we take the necessary precautions and, may, and do the mitigation that, that is needed to clean things up um, and, and move forward. So this is going to be difficult. Um, it's very hard to d- detect um, heavy metals in soils. And then to get around to do, doing uh, remediation uh, is even more difficult. But there, there, is, there, there are warnings. And um, we're putting together a task force right now. Um, I am also part of that. The Agency of Ag is part of that, uh, to look at what else that needs to be done to make sure that we, we adequately protect um, our farmers and, and consumers uh, from any potential harm or danger. What about supporting, you know, f- small farmers who have sustained a lot of damage, or for that matter, medium and larger farmers in Vermont? <clears throat> Is there any economic support going to the farms or, you know, boots on the ground kind of, you know, help to, to do some of the uh, repair and remediation might be required? Absolutely. Uh, so uh, FEMA um, is uh, is actually conducting assessments at the moment, and uh, you'd be quite familiar. Laura would be familiar with the uh, the Northeast Organic Farming Association of Vermont (NOFA), um, who also have a, a recovery fund that that's available. And um, low-hanging fruit, uh, a number of of people, um, um, philanthropists have come together. There, there, there's all kinds of GoFundMe um, uh, projects that have been uh, geared towards providing uh, relief to to many of our affected farmers and so on. There's any number. There, there, people have come out and they've, they've banded together to ensure that um, we take care of our neighbors and, um, and the people that feed us. Um, it's very, very important that we, we, have a, a, we, do, we, we come together with a, 
um, a package of assistance to our farmers is going to help because we can't move forward without without uh, making sure that this happens. Um, and this is a good time where where we, we to remind people that you, you know you really shouldn't criticize farmers and um, the way they do things because they do things based on the need of um, the consumers. I, I I once saw a very interesting uh, little a poster on somebody's wall. Um, it said, do not, uh, do not criticize a farmer with your mouth full. Um, <laughs> Good one. That. But yeah, there, there are a number of um, GoFundMe and other uh, NECAS, the, uh, the, the Northeast um, Center for uh, Food Safety, um, has um, uh, publications and um, also, and um, they're talking about, um, uh, you know, how to go move ahead there are also various other um, agencies and organizations that are working to to assist with uh with funding and and just relief um from these things so there is low hanging fruit gofundme uh there are uh, other philanthropists that have come in um there is state um um agencies that have been uh looking at providing quick relief as well as there's uh federal um assistance through fema and other agencies of the sort any reports from the organic farming community about how they're coping i it's a little more i guess like nuanced in terms of cont- contamination, which could mm-hmm. <laughs> create, you know, like an issue of, well, is this farm still organic if they've had some heavy metal contamination? Absolutely. I alluded to that when I, when I, when I talked about the heavy metal um, contamination. I have not had any specific response from um, the organic um, 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 folks yet, but I know that NOFA, um, the, the uh, Northeast Organic uh, Farming Association, is very actively engaged with their membership uh, throughout the state. So I'm sure that they're going to put out a statement on um, you know, organic uh, issues very, very soon. Uh, this is of concern because we want to make sure that we we sustain our organic production. Uh, of course, not everywhere in the state of Vermont was 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 as severely affected um, by the flooding as others. Uh, so those those farmers, I'm sure, will come to the, the aid of of others who are who are having uh, problems. And um, we'll figure out ways. Extension, as well as other agencies, will figure out ways to to assist those farmers who have been affected. We'll make sure we test to uh, to ensure sure whether there is heavy metal uh, contamination or E. coli contamination or any other bacterial mm-hmm. con- contamination. Um, but we'll put together all the resources to make sure that we're, we're, we're helping to mitigate any of the issues that I mentioned uh, earlier. Yeah, and I'll invite Steve Mono to jump in anytime he's got a question. Uh, this, may be, this may be one of those times or not. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead, Steve. Well, I would just say, you know, NOFA is a great resource in, in, in all the, the states in, in the Northeast. But, you know, I, I do get their notes and just, you know, they're they're still also surveying as well. So it's, you know, I think uh, it can be hard to communicate for farmers in, in these times when you're out there maybe rescuing a harvest or, you know, managing livestock in, in distress from, from these floods and, and things. So. Uh, but I know that, you know, because I, I get their newsletters as well as our own in here in Connecticut, but they're still doing surveys, you know, to find out uh, how everybody's impacted and, and pointing to those resources uh, that were mentioned about, you know, uh, emergency loans and um, 
uh, emergency funds both through Vermont and through uh, Vermont Farm Fund. So there's there's you know a, a lot of information still to be gathered as well as you know sharing the resources that are out there. Uh, FYI, uh, Roy Steve Mono is the co-chairman of the board of CT Nova. Okay, so <laughs> wonderful. I am familiar with Steve's name, believe it or not, um, <laughs> but um, I don't think we've met in person. Yeah, I had to meet over the phone, and I, I should say I've been relieved of my duty as a, as a co-president, but I still have been, I've served on the, the NOFO board here in Connecticut oh. for a number of years. Um, so, so gladly serving in that role, and, and likewise in Connecticut, we're trying to still gather all that information and direct people to resources. I'd say our Yukon Extension Services also, you know, similarly are trying to find out uh, and share as well, just to, just as Roy's doing throughout uh, Vermont. Wonderful, yes. Um, and, and just Steve, just to piggyback on something you said, um, I wanted to to assure um, you all that uh, extension is out there. We're, we're, we're national. We're, whenever something like this happens, we're out there um, to to assist our farmers, to work with farmers, um, and to aid in, in any way we, we can. Um, there are also um, organizations and entities within Extension, with the realm of Extension, EDEN, for example, Extension Disaster Education Network, uh, that we're, we're, we're trying to get to do some more work uh, in the state of Vermont. I'm sure um, EDEN also exists in, 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 in Connecticut. But we're, we're trying to, uh, to, to make sure that we have these engines to come to the, to the aid of our farmers to make sure that we, we get things done uh, in an orderly um, manner. Uh, to mitigate damage and loss and to, to make sure that when this happens again, because it, it, it will, um, that we're better prepared um, and uh, we're better able to, to respond um, to the issues that, um, that, that face us. Well, to follow up on that question, you mentioned what can you do to prepare for these kind of dire meteorological events? That's a tough question, man. I, I I don't know if I fully can uh, you know answer that question. But but <laughs> there 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 are, there are various ways. So okay, I I learned years ago. I as I said when I started uh, talking is that I lived in the British Virgin Islands for for ten years working in agricultural development and extension. Um, and the first thing is I learned the value of information. Uh, what's the value of information, of having information that knows that there's going to be a storm coming your way versus not knowing? There is a massive value to that. Um, and then how do you um, best prepare for whatever that um, issue is going to be? Uh, and then after you prepare, how do you go through the event itself? Uh, once you go through the event, coming out on the other side, what do you do then to make sure that you rescue uh, and that you uh, do all the other things that mitigate your, your losses and so on and be able to survive beyond that? Those are all the pieces that goes into the, um, the, the how you react to emergencies like this one. Um, and when you put into that problems with climate change and all that stuff that's going on that we know is actually happening, um, then we can come up with a better way to deal with the, the, with the issues. Um, Steve mentioned earlier that sometimes the, 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 the forecast around weather events is not even correct. So sometimes your information isn't even correct. But, you know, um, 
putting things together and packaging things together the way I just explained it will kind of help us to kind of tweak uh, every reaction and um, every emergency is going to be different, but you, we need that package of, um, of ideas to put together um, to respond to these disasters. And then, then to get all the players involved um, so that um, we can deal with these problems when they arise. Do you think that the, you have the resources to deal with this, this very difficult situation of potential heavy metal contamination in the soil? I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that, and, and what does it take to, to make the, the fixes for that problem that may have occurred in Vermont? We don't always have the resources to deal with it. Um, and I know that sometimes, you know, there are various, we have developed all kinds of scientific approaches to deal with um, uh, remediation of heavy metals. We, we do have that. It depends on the extent to which these contaminations are um, uh, happen. Um, but we do know that we can provide guidance um, um, you know, to farmers about where to relocate a particular thing uh, on a farm. We also have uh, responded to how we we do production. Our production systems have changed. So if you know that there's a particular kind of heavy metal existing in a particular place on a farm, then we go to a different system of production. You might go to elevated or, you know, hydroponic systems, so on and so forth. We move, we, uh, we, we, we do the remediation by putting certain uh, crops in there that pulls up um, heavy metals very efficiently, and we dispose of that adequately. There, there, there are various scientific approaches um, that we have come up with that, um, that will help deal with these issues. First of all, though, we need to be able to identify and diagnose where these problems are. Uh, and it, it doesn't necessarily, necessarily mean that when there is heavy metal contamination in an area on a farm that is everywhere on the farm. So maybe mm-hmm. maybe 5% or 10%, we'll figure out how to, to deal with those issues um, and help the farmer uh, respond. Well, thank you for that explanation. That was very interesting about yeah, the crops that can actually get pull up the heavy metals and dispose of them in that way. Our guest has been Dr. Roy Beckford, the Associate Dean of... Uh, the Agriculture uh, Extension at University of Vermont. Yeah, somehow <laughs> somehow, uh, Laura and I will... <laughs> we'll get that between us, being yeah, one we'll, brain. <laughs> that's right. Two brains are better than one. Thank you so much, Roy, for being with us. Thank it was you. a great, great report, Thank and you. we'll, we'll really stay great. tuned and uh, try to be with you it's, again. It's been fun. It's been fun to be with you and thanks Laura for inviting me and oh, um, sure. greetings from greetings from all our farming um, um, uh, personnel here in the state of Vermont. Our pleasure to have you and we'll talk to you soon. Be, good luck in Vermont. And, Thank you. Um, yeah, so Steve, thanks so, so much for being with us again and we'll be back in uh, blah blah. Two for, weeks, August 3rd. Oh, good. Thank you, Laura. Oh, for, and tonight, Sport Hill Farm is 6 to 9. I forgot to mention. Sport Hill Farm, 6 to 9 tonight, a free concert. All right, all, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Laura Modlin <laughs> and Steve Mono. Thank you, Richard Hill. All right. Thank you, Talk to you all soon. No I tell you it's intuitive, baby. Down right Organic love, 100% natural, baby. Organic love, 100% natural. This world we're living in.
gets crazier by the day. Yes, it do. This is the Gaiagram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. The New York Times reports the temperature in Phoenix was expected to be above 110 degrees for the 20th consecutive day, breaking a record with no end in sight. A heat wave is also gripping parts of Europe, including Italy and Spain, and Canadian wildfires once again sent smoke across the United States. Iran's Persian Gulf International Airport experienced record-breaking heat last week due to a rare combination of extremely high temperature and abundant atmospheric moisture that created a heat index. According to U.S. Stormwatch, the Iran airport reported a heat index of 152 degrees Fahrenheit. The shocking temperature was seen in Iran after searing inland heat clashed with humid air flowing off the very warm waters of the Persian Gulf. The Atlantic hurricane season is headed into uncharted territory with water temperatures in the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico warmer than they have ever been on record. Seasonal forecasters are warning it means you need to prepare for a more uncertain forecast for the rest of the season with potential for more storms and stronger ones. Sea surface temperatures around parts of Florida and the Bahamas are warmer than 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Warm ocean water is one one of the key ingredients for fueling hurricanes and has been in abundance so far this year. A small city west of Austin is under the highest level of water emergency possible amid a significant drought. Officials have asked community members to stop all unnecessary water usage as the problem persists. The city of Blanco's most recent water conservation problem has been ongoing since at least mid-June, when the mayor issued an update saying that the city's water supply is vulnerable because a local river was too low for us to take water out of it. According to the PBS NewsHour, a review by federal ocean regulators of the status of a vanishing species of whale, the right whale, has found that the animal's population is in worse shape than previously thought. The North Atlantic right whale numbers less than 350 and has been declining in population for several years. The federal government declared the whale's decline an unusual mortality event. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration released new data that 114 of the whales have been documented as dead, seriously injured, or sublethally injured, or sick since the start of the mortality event. Researchers at the University of Texas in Austin have discovered an enzyme that eats plastic fast, and scientists think it could revolutionize how we deal with waste. The team used artificial intelligence, chemical engineering, and synthetic biology to turn a natural enzyme called petase into a plastic-eating machine. PET, a type of polyethylene terephthalate, is a clear, strong, and lightweight plastic that's widely used in food packaging and plastic bottles. Pete's got its name from its ability to degrade pet plastics. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, 64% of Iowa's energy production now comes from wind, a new record for the state. Iowa has been a wind energy leader for decades, but Iowa has a goal of becoming fossil fuel independent by 2035. Green energy advocates call this a big step along the road to fossil fuel independence. Maersk, one of the world's largest shipping companies, has a new container ship that sets sail this week that is the first ever to run on green methanol. 
made from methane captured from food waste at landfills. The company has a commitment to only buy new ships that can use green fuels. The company already has another 25 of the ships on order, and it's also beginning to retrofit older ships to use the same fuel. By the end of the decade, the company plans to transport a quarter of its ocean cargo using green fuels. This was the Gaia-Gram. Environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. WPKN programming is supported by Novamont, a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at materbi.com slash E-N. This is the supreme serenading calypso king of the world, the mighty sparrow. And you are listening to WPKN Radio 89.5 FM in Bridgeport.